from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah. Hello, 老师你好，我是华盛顿邮报记者施嘉欣。Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Kimberly Kelly. It's Tuesday, March 5th. Today, House Democrats are starting their investigation into all things Trump. Doctors say they've cured a London man of HIV and a mysterious visitor to our solar system. House Democrats are opening an investigation into President Donald Trump, and it's an exhaustive one. You go from Jared Kushner to people like Paul Erickson. You're talking about the inaugural committee and the NRA. It is a very, very broad spectrum, and it goes from the big fish all the way down to the smaller little fish. Karen Demersion covers Congress for the Post. I cover national security issues on Capitol Hill. Karen has been reporting on the more than 80 people and institutions that the House Judiciary Committee is now demanding documents from. They're looking into almost everything that you've heard about, raised in conjunction with the probes of the president over the last year, which is everything ranging from questions of obstruction of justice to questions of whether he had any sort of untoward ties with foreign governments. To questions about whether he tried to push certain people out of office and why he fired Jim Comey, and and basically anything that has been raised as a line of inquiry that might tangentially even pertain to the Mueller probe was covered in this request, this large to eighty-one request for documents that the judiciary sent out, which is what they're supposedly saying is their first salvo that there's going to be more to come on top of all of this. So it's clearly. A lot of information that they're looking for. What are they actually hoping to accomplish? Well, I think what they're trying to do at this point is just start to shake the trees and get all of the documents that they think that shouldn't be that hard to find. Now, it's kind of a subjective definition, though, of when you say you you know give me anything related to this topic. That's a very very wide ask, and you usually get witnesses pushing back and saying, "Hold on, now, like you know that that's that's too broad. I'm not going to give you this, this, that, and the other." And then you get into these legal fights, and subpoenas are thrown around, and maybe court battles. That's all what we have to look forward to. But what they're trying to do, basically, in the here and now, is substantiate what they can about the allegations that have been raised and. Figure out what doesn't stick and what does. I think a lot of these questions would potentially be more readily answerable if members of Congress at this point had access to everything that Mueller had done, to all the investigative files, not just the final report, because we don't know how extensive and long that's going to be, even if we see the whole thing, but the, all the investigative files, the grand jury testimony, and that's all stuff that they want down the line. The problem is that on the Hill, they don't know when they're actually going to get access to it, so they want to be able to do their own investigation to get their hands on as much as they possibly can that's already out there to inform the directions that they want to go, because as much as The information that Mueller has could be very important and informative for the House probes. It's not going to be a direction signal because the House probes have a much more expansive mandate. They can look into any sort of abuse of power, which is a much broader assignment, basically, than Mueller had, which was to look for any sort of crime. What has been the response from Republicans to this investigation? It's been largely to jeer it. I mean, it, it was such a widespread. Ask for documents, eighty-one letters and counting,、um, and Republicans are basically saying, you know, this is overreach. Pick your lane, decide what it is you want to do. You cannot do absolutely everything under the sun, and it seems like you're just trying to grab up every last little shred of dust that might exist that might be, you know, unsavory about the president. And that's not a real investigation. That's what the GOP has been saying. 
There is an argument that if you're going to put out this many letters and if you're going to build on top of that, how are you going to choose what your priorities are? And I think that's a challenge just generally for the Democrats. They have six committees that are looking at this pool of issues related to this general scoping investigation and beyond. If they all sent out 81 letters as an opening salvo or more, you would find that they're going to start to bump into each other. These committees have different spheres of expertise. They are talking to each other on a weekly basis to try to figure out who is where. But again, if they all pursue this sort of a strategy, you might not just have the committees bump into each other, but you'll have witnesses get confused about who they're supposed to produce records for. So I think that this is certainly a splash of a move. And we're paying attention because we're still talking about it. And it's a whole other day later. Um, but the challenge for Democrats moving forward is going to be, OK, if you get the answer to all of your questions, who's going to run with what? Because you want to be able to do as much as you can, as efficiently as you can. Because even if you don't have necessarily a tight deadline, I think Democrats are aware that everything right now is measured in terms of how many months we're away from 2020. And if you're still investigating with no sort of conclusions, whether that's the impeachment word or, or less, then you've kind of missed that opportunity. So I think that that's the scope of time in which we're looking. And, and, and you've got to take into consideration that there's a lot here that's going to have to be prioritized, if not parceled out, so that they can actually attack it. And they haven't said yet exactly how they're planning to do that. How has the president responded to all this? To object emphatically over Twitter, which is his normal style of doing things. He called it a big, fat fishing expedition, presidential harassment, the greatest overreach in the history of our country. We know that this president is prone to superlatives, but he, he has been accusing Democrats since they won the House of just trying to use their majority to harangue him, to try to block everything that he's doing and to try to confuse his presidency basically by, by pursuing all of these oversight probes. Of course, Democrats say it is our legitimate and constitutional authority to conduct oversight on the administration. And there's a lot here that is suspect, but that is the back and forth. You've got Republicans by and large. It's interesting, actually, that, you know, when you talk about the Mueller probe, it's really only the president's closest allies that are saying, oh, that's a witch hunt. Everybody else is kind of defensive of his right to do his job un unimpeded. But when you talk about the congressional investigations, it's pretty much you can draw a very hard line down the center of Congress right now for Republicans who think Democrats are trying to play politics and just try to make the president look bad however they can without a real plan, without real proof there. And I mean, part of this is politics, yes, but part of it is also substance that they're seeking out. So that's the situation that we're in right now. So what's the precedence of an investigation like this? It depends on what you want to look at. You want to look at the political side of it. You want to look at the substantive side of it. Politically, you could say anything from the Clinton email probe investigations of whether the FBI and DOJ conducted this appropriately. That's what the GOP did for the last two years. That's a precedent in terms of how much information the GOJ actually ended up turning over to Congress, which Democrats are saying, that's our baseline now and we want to go even further than that. You could look a little further back and say the Benghazi probe, which was a hugely political um, event. And it was a long running event that kind of lost the political moment in a way, because as much as it was scrutinizing Hillary Clinton and as much as some of those themes came back to bite her during the campaign, it had stretched out over so many years and had been so hyper, hyper politicized that it was more of a base satisfying issue than it was actually a, an issue that was going to convince anybody or yielded anything really that people could use in the end. And then if you want to go even further back than that, I think the one precedent that everybody needs to kind of study up on a little bit is the Nixon era, because that's when you actually had um, not just the impeachment proceedings, which may or may not happen here, but you had the uh, the special prosecutor in that case turn over his roadmap, basically the grand jury notes from that. And so that sets a precedent of how much 
the House Judiciary Committee and others may expect to see and may expect to be able to learn about what Mueller did so they can choose whether to go down the same path or use that information selectively for what they choose to do. So you mentioned that obviously Democrats would like to wrap this up before 2020, before the election. So where does that leave us for right now? I mean, at the prospect of seeing, you know, when can we see documents? (laughs) Well, I mean, I feel like it leaves all of us going, you know, like waiting waiting with bated breath for what's going to happen next. And I think that was the effect of sending out this large and this sweeping of a document request. They put a deadline of March 18th on everything. But if I learned anything from covering the GOP-led probes of the FBI and DOJ over the last two years, it's that deadlines are meant to be extended and do get extended. We're in the asking stage right now for those documents, right? Usually what follows that is the negotiation stage. Okay, well, when can we get them if there's like a, a real circumstance that's making it impossible for you to meet that deadline? And then that's when we get to, after that, the enforcement stage, which is, you know, the subpoenas and the potential court battles after that. But there is no proscribed rule for how quickly you can go from step one, whatever end step it is that they want to take. And the Democrats have said they want to work more with Republicans to try to issue these subpoenas. Obviously, they have more people in all these panels, so they can do it themselves if they want to with a simple majority vote. But we'll see how much they actually stick by that and how much they decide that if people are not meeting deadlines, they're going to go straight to the subpoenas. And that's going to set the tone for whether this is going to be more of a combative sort of a probe or if it's going to be more conciliatory is the wrong word because that's not the mindset that they're in. But but if they're going to try to do this calmly or if they're going to try to do this aggressively. And I think that probably the pendulum swings towards aggressively. Given the situation Democrats are in and given the considerations of both the time element of wanting to do this investigation and figure out sooner rather than later whether they're going to have to go down the impeachment road and just the calendar element, that's everything that they have to count on. Karn Demersion covers Congress for The Post. I am Timothy Ray Brown. I'd been called the Berlin patient for years, but um, I prefer to use my real name since I came out to the public. Timothy Ray Brown, better known as the Berlin patient, was the first person to be cured of HIV more than a decade ago. He was the only person. But now, there's a patient in London, too. I'm so happy to have, have somebody join my family. It's a very small family. I'm the only person in it so far. Well, until this patient... Brown spoke to us from a conference in Seattle, where the scientific achievement was announced on Tuesday. This patient, who has decided to remain anonymous, so researchers are just calling him the London patient, has been in a long-term remission for more than a year and a half from HIV. I'm Carolyn Johnson, and I cover science here at The Post. Carolyn has been covering this story, and she noticed right away that people were getting really excited about these headlines. It doesn't, however, mean that this is going to become a standard treatment. The way that this patient was treated isn't something doctors would try for just anyone. In addition to having HIV, he also had cancer, making him a candidate for a bone marrow transplant. This 
London patient is an extremely exciting advance, and it's going to spur a lot more science to try and find ways to use what they learned here to maybe create other cures. But this is a really intensive and rare procedure that this person underwent. He was suffering from Hodgkin's lymphoma, and you wouldn't just give a bone marrow transplant to an otherwise healthy person with HIV because it comes with a lot of other risks. Why did it take a dozen years to do this again? It has to do with the difficulty of doing these transplants. So a bone marrow transplant is not a trivial procedure. The first patient received a bone marrow transplant that had two disabled copies of a gene called CCR5. And this gene creates a protein that's on the outside of white blood cells and helps the HIV virus invade the cells. And so if the gene's not functioning, which it only isn't functioning in a tiny percent of people, mostly in Northern Europe, then the virus can't get into the cells. So these people are effectively kind of resistant to HIV. But bone marrow matches are hard. You might have heard of how difficult it can be to find a match. So finding a genetic match for the bone marrow transplant is hard. And then there's the fact that these people also have cancer. So when they've tried it in some other patients, HIV researchers told me oftentimes these patients might die of their underlying malignancy of the cancer rather than being able to replicate the remarkable progress of this one patient. So there's a whole bunch of things, like it's a numbers game that it's hard to find appropriate transplant matches and people with the right genetic match to get the kind of transplant that could provide this. And then there's also just the fact that these people are also very sick with cancer. And so that also further selects down how many people are eligible. Is there something else about the stem cell treatment that makes it not necessarily a panacea for curing HIV? Well, there aren't very many donors that have this basically malfunctioning gene. So that's one thing. And then you just wouldn't do a stem cell transplant into an otherwise healthy person with HIV because it's got a lot of morbidity and mortality associated with it. It's not an easy procedure to undergo. So doctors actually have much better tools to treat HIV now than they do to treat like leukemia in many cases. So they wouldn't subject a person with HIV to a bone marrow transplant if they didn't have cancer. So at least at this point, the best help for people is actually managing the disease through drugs and drug treatment? Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that's really been stunning about HIV is how many drugs there are and how successful they've been at transforming this into a manageable, lifelong chronic disease with patients that have access to good medication being able to live nearly normal lives. So, you know, this is a really hopeful advance and there's a lot of hope, especially in more lower income countries that where access to medication may be different or there may be more drug-resistant strains of the virus, that something like this could be helpful. But, you know, I think one thing this just shows is it's another step of progress, but there has been already so much progress in HIV that the disease has really changed. 
Thank you, Carolyn. Thanks. Carolyn Johnson covers science for The Post. Timothy Ray Brown, the Berlin patient, hopes that scientists working on HIV will keep going with their research. I want to encourage the brilliant scientists that have been working on finding HIV cures to keep going and come up with something that is more viable to everyone else. And now, one more thing about Oumuamua. It's the first interstellar object found in our solar system, and Avi Loeb is the Harvard professor who first popularized the idea that it might be an alien spacecraft. Oumuamua is now on its way past Jupiter, and the whole time that we've known about it, his career arc has been trending from the uh, studious academic into sort of a quasi-celebrity. Avi Selk is the features reporter for The Post and got the chance to sit down with Loeb in his office. He really looks like he is sort of in a different world himself as composed to the kind of just mundane environment of the faculty building. But what really sets Loeb apart from his colleagues is that he and another scientist wrote a paper about how a space object defying physics could possibly come from alien technology. The big thing that nobody could really explain is when Oumuamua approached our sun and then did sort of a big U-turn around it and started flying back out of our solar system, it was going much faster than conventional physics said it should have been. There seemed to be an extra force that is pushing it, and it's not clear what this push is from. That's Loeb on CBS's This Morning. Selk says the professor had documentary crews, the Atlantic, and the New Yorker after him all because of a paper he wrote with a colleague. At the end of their paper, in like a few paragraphs, they said, the only thing that we can think of is that Oumuamua is not actually a rock. It's potentially a light sail. Imagine like a ship sail, something very, very flat, like no more than a millimeter thick, extremely long, that sunlight is actually giving it the little kick it needs. After Loeb's paper basically called Oumuamua an alien spacecraft, the professor's idea went viral. It got probably more attention than an astronomy paper has gotten in in years. And at the same time, there was a bit of a backlash among some of Avi Loeb's colleagues in the astronomy field, who kind of ranged from just skeptical to being outright annoyed with him that he would publish something that was this sort of speculative. Nobody has any evidence to explain what it is. While Loeb's fellow scientists may doubt his idea, they can't doubt his popularity. Avi Loeb has gone from this fairly revered but publicly unknown astronomer within his community to this absolute celebrity. Avi Selk is a features reporter for The Post. That's it for today's show. I'm Kimbrielle Kelly. 
We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.